0: So we left off in the first conference with our understanding that the little way is simple, direct, and obvious. So as we begin to explore this further, let us go to our prayer. Hopefully you all have this with you, hopefully. Yes. Of the purple sheet. We will do the second part of this. So we'll do the third paragraph, fourth paragraph, and fifth paragraph. Or let's see, we did the third. So we'll do the fourth, fifth, and sixth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Her divine Son, my well beloved spouse, during his life on earth, told us, If you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you. I am then certain that thou wilt hearken to my desires. My God, I know it. The more thou willest to give, the more dost thou make us desire. Immense are the desires that I feel within my heart and it is with confidence that I call upon thee to come and take possession of my soul. I cannot receive thee in Holy Communion as often as I would. But, O Lord, all thou art not Almighty, remain in me as in the tabernacle, never leave thy little victim. To, I long to console thee for the ingratitude of the wicked And I pray thee, take from me the liberty to displease thee. If through frailty I fall sometimes, may thy divine grace purify my soul immediately, consuming every imperfection, like to fire which transforms all things into itself. I thank thee, O my God, for all the graces thou hast bestowed on me, and particularly for making me pass through the crucible of suffering, it is with joy I shall behold thee on the last day bearing thy scepter, the cross. Since thou hast designed to give me for my portion this most precious cross, I have hope of resembling thee in heaven, and seeing the sacred stigmata of thy passion, shine in my glorified body. St. Therese, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So, yet learning to love God completely, and my neighbor with that same love, is not so simple. Or is it? Let us allow Therese to instruct us on this. St. Therese was made a doctor of the church by St. John Paul II on October 19, 1997. That such a title would someday be bestowed on her would have both puzzled and surprised her. She writes... Jesus has no need of books or doctors to instruct souls. He who is himself the doctor of doctors teaches without the noise of words. Never have I heard him speak, but I feel he is within me at each moment. He is guiding and inspiring me with what I must say and do. To declare a person a doctor, meaning teacher, of the faith is to recognize in the words of St. John Paul II that the doctrine professed and proclaimed by a certain person can be a reference point, not only because it conforms to revealed truth, but also because it sheds new light on the mysteries of the faith, a deeper understanding of Christ's mystery. It is taking that truth of the faith And looking at it from another perspective, such as looking at a beautiful diamond, as one turns it around, it sparkles and it shimmers, revealing different aspects and colors, though it is the same diamond. So it is, with Therese's approach to God's justice and mercy, which are ultimately tied to and flow from God's love. In fact, for Therese, in the words of St. John Paul II, God's mercy is love's second name. Though Therese did not see herself as a doctor of the church, she had a burning desire to want to teach the whole world about God's merciful love. And so writes, somewhat prophetically in her autobiography, I feel within me other vocations. I feel the vocation of the doctor. Ah, in spite of my littleness, I would like to enlighten souls, as did the prophets and doctors. That Therese would join the 32 other doctors, among them Augustine, Aquinas, and Teresa of Avila, was quite fitting, as affirmed by the words of St. John Paul II, Thérèse of Lisieux did not only grasp and describe the profound truth of love as the center and heart of the church, but in her short life, she lived it intensely. It is precisely this convergence of doctrine and concrete experience of truth and life, of teaching and practice, which shines with particular brightness in the saint and which makes her an attractive model, especially for young people and for those who are seeking true meaning for their life. Trez, for us, is the doctor who shows us how to love as she did, and most of all, to love the love that is mercy. One of the greatest struggles that the church has always dealt with is the tension between justice and mercy, St. Thomas Aquinas states there can be no contradiction, and that justice and mercy are inseparable in God, so that His justice is always merciful, and His mercy is always just. In the world, when we try to apply justice, sometimes it is with mercy, sometimes it is not, and vice versa. One of the greatest frustrations for people in the world is witnessing a complete lack of justice when someone is not made accountable for an obvious crime. Even the Church, in her approach and discipline on certain matters, experiences this tension. Currently, there is great tension between those who think that the annulment process should be radically altered and those who think it should be left more or less as it currently exists with maybe one or two tweaks those who want it radically altered say that it lacks mercy while those who want to retain it as it, as it is say that the radical changes would do an injustice to justice what exactly the end result of all of this will be remains to be seen one thing is clear The Church's approach to annulments must be both just and merciful. One cannot exclude the other, and ultimately all of this must be guided by love and not by egos. A second example of this tension between justice and mercy was in 2002, in which the Charter for the Protection of Young People was put into place by the U.S. bishops with Rome's approval to deal with in a uniform way the problem of clerical sexual abuse of minors. The Charter, as it is written, takes a zero-tolerance approach to sexual abuse and so it comes out strong on the side of justice. Well, at the same time, it does have some deficiencies in the areas of due process for priests and deacons who are considered credibly accused. Furthermore, the bishops, that is, only those who actually voted for the passage of the Charter, excused themselves from this same process, a glaring omission of justice that has since been addressed but is still found somewhat lacking in the metropolitan model that was adopted. The Charter, as a whole, while it has addressed the overall problem of sexual abuse of clergy, still has areas that need to be addressed before it can be considered a document that truly reflects both justice and mercy. These two examples show that this tension between justice and mercy is quite common, and at times has even entered into the spiritual life of the church. At the time that Therese entered Carmel, France was still influenced in some circles by a heresy called Jansenism. In a nutshell, Jansenism Jansenism is a heresy that denies free will, states that God purposefully denies grace to some people, and emphasized moral rigor and exaggerated strictness in the spiritual life. One could see within this heresy the problems with how it viewed both God's justice and mercy. And often Jansenism tended towards an approach that over-emphasized God's justice and did not really speak of his mercy. The Carmel that St. Therese had entered into still clung to some influences of Jansenism. God and his majesty and transcendence was stressed to the degree that knowing and loving God as a person as a caring, loving God that one sees and knows as a loving Father was not really emphasized or encouraged. God was unrecognizable, impersonal, faceless, formidable, unapproachable, and almost anonymous. <clears throat> this was not to say that there was. No one in the Catholic world who experienced God in a deep and personal way, because there were. But at this particular Carmelite monastery, God's more transcendent qualities were emphasized. So enters Therese, who comes to know and experience God the Father in a way that Carmel had not known before. Carmel had emphasized a spirit of penance and mortification, over the dynamism of love. Once again, penance and mortification, within reason, can be a good and worthy thing in the spiritual life. But when they become an end in themselves, then something has gone wrong. A good example of this is a friend of mine who joined a Franciscan order on a trial basis to see if he was called to that particular way of life at that particular place. What he found was that the brothers in this particular place were all trying to outdo one another, and who could fast to the greatest degree? And some of the brothers were so emaciated that they were most likely harming their overall health. St. Francis himself fasted to the point where he caused himself intestinal problems and was finally ordered by a wise cardinal to whom he had obedience to begin eating on a regular basis and to curtail the severe fasting. My friend found this particular order to be unbalanced and eventually left. Pierre Descovimont refers to this tendency in his book, Therese and Lesue, when he writes, to save the world, consecrated souls were in fact encouraged to offer themselves as victims to God's justice in order to take upon themselves the anger of the thrice holy God, which was ready to strike sinners. In accepting God's thunderbolts, they were happy to act in some way like a beneficial lightning rod. So Therese is sent to this particular carmel by the Holy Spirit not only to grow in holiness, but to eventually show to this carmel and the rest of the Catholic world how to avoid the errors and excesses of Jansenism. This simple and obscure soul would transform the Catholic world by her little way. Therese writes about how she was disturbed by an obituary, she read, of a Carmelite nun from another part of France. The obituary said that the sister made a habit of offering herself as a victim of divine justice. In her agony, the dying nun was heard to cry out in anguish, I bear the rigors of divine justice, divine justice. I do not have enough merits. I must earn more. This really was a clear example of Jansenistic thinking and something that Therese would try to correct in the Carmelite order. Her encounter with one of her own sisters in Carmel reveals the thinking that was ingrained in some of the sisters at the time. She writes of Sister St. John the Baptist. Now, I like John the Baptist. I was ordained on John the Baptist's birth, and... So, but you can already see where this is going. Just the very name of the sister should already give you a hint. She writes of Sister St. John the Baptist, who wanted to acquire sanctity by the strength of her own efforts, by multiplying prayers and penances. She accused Therese of relying too much on God's mercy in a way that neglected divine justice. And this is why Therese regarded Sister St. John the Baptist as, in her own words, the image of God's severity. That constant struggle between justice and mercy caused some of the Carmelite sisters to question Therese's understanding of divine justice. Even the sub prioress of the community, Sister Ferboni, thought that Therese overemphasized God's mercy and forgot his justice. And they debated back and forth in a friendly way about this. But Sister Febroni wouldn't listen to reason. And Sister Therese finally had to say to her, Sister, you want the justice of God? And so you will have the justice of God. For the soul receives from God exactly what it expects. And how right to res is. For Jesus says quite plainly in the Gospel of Matthew, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And again, in the letter of St. James, the apostle declares, For judgment is without mercy for him who has shown no mercy for mercy triumphs judgment. St. John the Evangelist proclaims in his first letter, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. St. John does not say, God is justice. He says, quite plainly, God is love. And this is the beginning point for Therese in formulating her little way. Jansenism had, for a long time, convinced Catholics that Holy Communion should only be received periodically, on special feast days and holy days outside of Sundays. The Carmel that Therese belonged to sought to have daily communion, but the Mother Superior disagreed. Therese, having a deep love and devotion to Jesus in the Most Holy Eucharist, respectfully disagreed with the Mother Superior, going so far as to tell her, Jesus does not descend from heaven daily in order to remain in a golden ciborium, but to find another heaven, the heaven of our souls, in which he takes delight. Later on, it is widely believed that the reforms of St. Pius X in allowing daily communion for Catholics throughout the world and for children to receive Holy Communion at seven years of age was attributed to the intercession of St. Therese of Lisieux. Kind of an aside on this is I remember talking to a Catholic one time who was very upset at St. Pius X for doing this. And I said, well, why are you upset? And this person said, well... He allowed children of seven to, to receive it. They they don't understand what they're receiving. They don't know what that really is. That's too young. And I looked at him and I said, Do any of us really understand outside that we know it's the real presence, it's the real body, blood, soul, and divinity? Do any of us really understand? what we're receiving. Do we understand how amazing and incredible that is? Do we comprehend that? We we can't even begin to think about the mystery of the Eucharist. We know the tip of the iceberg, and there is so much more to it. It's so incredible, and it's why over the centuries the Church has such a beautiful Eucharistic theology because it just continues to expand and to grow because this is a mystery that has no end. It is a mystery that goes on and on. And so I said to him, you know, those, those children sometimes know better than the adults. <laughs> it's some of the adults I'm worried don't know what they're receiving. Our kids, when they receive Holy Communion at seven years of age, they all know, partly because we have a great teacher teaching them, who pounds it into their heads, that is the real presence of Jesus Christ. And they know it, and they believe it. And so I think later on, as we get older, sometimes that's when we forget it, especially if we're away from the church for a while and we've lost our, our connection, our attachment to Jesus in the Eucharist. So I'm one of those that says, thank you, St. Pius X, for giving us daily communion and for allowing children to receive at seven years of age. St. John Paul II, in making St. Therese a doctor of the Church, saw in her teachings the very message that he wanted to teach the world in his great encyclical, Dives en Misericordia, meaning rich in mercy, in which he calls mercy, love's second name. Written at the beginning of his pontificate, we go on to define his papacy as one of mercy, most especially with the canonization of Sister Faustina, the receiver and promoter of the image and message of the divine mercy of Jesus, which we're very blessed to have in our chapel with us today. St. John Paul II states in his encyclical how all justice must be based on love and how authentic justice flows from this love and tends toward it. To put it another way, mercy is the source of justice. As a result, mercy conditions justice so that justice serves love. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's like, you have to sit there and, and, and you can meditate on that for an hour or two. Is such a rich statement from our Holy Father. St. John Paul II goes on to say that the world needs St. Therese to teach the world about mercy because a world without mercy and forgiveness would become a world of cold and unfeeling justice. Selfishness would corrupt society into a system of oppression of the weak by the strong a world of division, segregation, and unending strife. Therese understood all too clearly that the world was in desperate need to know of and receive God's mercy. She writes, On every side, God's love is unknown, rejected. Those hearts upon whom you lavish love turn to creatures seeking happiness from them with their miserable affection." They do this instead of throwing themselves into your arms and of accepting your infinite love. Among his own disciples, Jesus finds few hearts who surrender to him without reservation, who understand the real tenderness of his infinite love. In today's world, there is no longer the presence of Jansenism as it existed in the 17th through 1900s. In fact, there are some who say the opposite heresy has taken its place, that of presumption. That is, people who are so assured of going to heaven that they do not even believe that there is a hell and that they can live whatever life they want because God simply loves them. This, of course, makes a mockery out of God's justice And of the gospel itself, it distorts mercy and it forgets that mercy is always tied to justice. Therese speaks in story of a soul of God's love being tied to justice and mercy. I cannot conceive of a greater immensity of love than the one which it has pleased you, Lord, to give me freely without any merit on my part. If your justice loves to release itself, this justice which extends only over the earth, how much more does your merciful love desire to set souls on fire since your mercy reaches to the heavens? It is only love which makes us acceptable to God. It is no longer a question of loving one's neighbor as oneself, but of loving him as he, Jesus, has loved him, and will love him to the consummation of the ages. Father Peter Cameron sums this up nicely in his short discourse entitled First Steps on the Little Way of St. Therese of Lisieux, in which he states, Therese helps us to see that the justice of God consists in God's giving us what we need to satisfy God. Justice, then, means receiving from God what we cannot offer him on our own without him. Christian justice means seeking God first in Jesus. You see how that works? In giving ourselves to Jesus, who takes on our punishment, who takes on our sins, we say, okay, Jesus, I give myself to you And then what you do is you present yourself to the Father for us, and you suffer for us, and you pay that price for us. And then God is able then to basically say to us that we now receive his mercy because we've received his justice, because Jesus has taken that for us. Jesus is the one who's accomplished that for us. So this is such a a rich and deep part of the little way of understanding that if we tried to give God what he deserves from us in the way of justice, we can't. I mean, I am way behind already. I can tell you that. I'm like, I, 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 could not, I could do good works and penances the rest of my life, and I will never make up for what I've already died. There's no way I cannot pay it back. Jesus is the one who does it for us. And so justice means, then, receiving from God what we cannot offer him on our own without him. Christian justice means seeking God first in Jesus. Christian justice means seeking God in Jesus, especially when we're tempted to rest on our own strengths, on our own accomplishments, on a false sense of entitlement. Because when we seek God first in Jesus Christ, then God gives us whatever we need to please Him. And that is what authentic gospel justice is all about letting God give us what we need to please him. So authentic Christian justice is the work of God's merciful love by which he makes his children just by giving them what they need to please him. He gives to us what we give back. (laughs) And so what follows is that Therese realizes that she can never love others the way God does unless he, God, lends her his love. She writes, Ah, Lord, you know very well that never would I be able to love my sisters as you love them, unless you, O my Jesus, love them in me. Your will is to love in me all those you command me to love. For me to love you as you love me, I would have to borrow your love. I think that is so beautiful. So she basically understands if, we can, if we're to really love as Jesus loves, then we have to borrow that love from God in order to do it. We can't just do that with our own limited love. We need that divine love in order to do that. In one of her letters, Therese writes the following. Merit does not consist in doing or in giving much, but rather in receiving and loving much. To please Jesus, to delight his heart, one only has to love him without looking at oneself. So it's not in doing or in giving much, but rather in receiving from God and then loving much. This would become a central theme of the little way that we receive much from God, more than we ever deserve, and then generously give back to Him. I have to tell you a story about the uh, about deserving things. So there's a a group of priests in Wyoming that we'd get together and they would play cards every Sunday. And one of their brother priests, who some of them really didn't like and who was a difficult and challenging personality and among other things, well, he finally uh, got called to accountability and some of the priests were saying, well, Father so-and-so sure got what he deserved, didn't he? And they're all, you know, basically nodding in agreement and, you know, basically saying, yep, it finally all came around. And, and, and there was Father Charlie Taylor sitting there quietly, a priest I, I love and respect. He has now gone on to heaven or uh, maybe purgatory. I still pray for him. And uh, he himself is saying, they're quiet, and they all noticed that, and they looked at him, and they said, well, don't you agree with us? And he said, gentlemen, let us hope none of us gets what we deserve. And there was dead silence So, we receive much more from God than we deserve in the good things, and we don't get what we deserve for the bad things because Jesus takes that for us. So, we have a pretty good arrangement going. Don't you agree? (laughs) And so, we receive much from God, more than we ever deserve, and then generously give back to him. And secondly... We then give generously to others more than we think they deserve. Well, there you go. See, and this is key to the little way. Giving more to others than they deserve. How many of us have fallen into that? That person doesn't deserve that. I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not going to waste my money. I'm not going to waste whatever it is. That person does not deserve that. And so we get kind of stingy. We are not generous because we're only going to be generous to those we think are deserving. Well, if God was that way with us, we wouldn't receive anything. So she's reminding us That the way that God is so generous to us, now we've got to be just like him and how we are towards one another. It is a generous outpouring of love, that same love, mercy, we have received and then generously shower that on others, whether they deserve it or not, because we never deserved it in the first place. We are only sharing what God has first generously shared with us. It's not ours. It's from God. So why are we thinking we have to hold on to it and kind of give it out just here and there? It's like God showered us with it and now he wants us to do the same towards others. So how to receive much and to love much? That is the challenge. And Therese's answer will be, the little way. In returning to the theme of perfection, Therese writes, Perfection seems simple to me. I see it is sufficient to recognize one's nothingness and to abandon oneself as a child into God's arms. This is the core of the little way. To one of her novices, Therese gave the following advice. If God wants you to be weak and powerless as a child, do you think your merit will be any less for that? Resign yourself then to stumbling at every step, to falling even, and to being weak and carrying your cross. Love your powerlessness, and your soul will benefit more from it than if, aided by grace, you were to behave with enthusiastic heroism and fill your soul with self-satisfaction." Isn't that intriguing? Fascinating? It's not what we think at first. That in resigning, that we're weak and powerless, that we are going to open ourselves more fully to God's grace than if we're basically just kind of going along and thinking, you know, I'm doing all right. I'm pretty good overall, and I you know, haven't committed any moral sins, I haven't done this, I haven't done that, and we, we, we pretty, we're living a good life. And we're not breaking the commandments, and, but are we loving in the way we're supposed to? So to do this for each one of us is to admit our powerlessness to surrender ourselves to God, like that little child, to let go of all control, to admit our weaknesses without excuse, to see ourselves for who we really are, and to give all of that to God. And there really is nothing more freeing. How many times I have had a soul come to me in confession and say, Father, I keep committing the same sins over and over. Why do I keep doing this? Why can't I change? Why can I stop committing this sin? And my response, after many years of learning God's wisdom, is to now say, this sin, these sins, reveal to you that you are powerless without God. These sins are a testimony that the only possible way out of this dilemma is to abandon yourself to the grace and mercy of God. Only in admitting your powerlessness can God really begin to work in and through you. For when St. Paul complained of the same thing, God responded by saying to him, My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so St. Paul continues, I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. St. Therese writes of her own weakness, declaring, I expect each day to discover new imperfections in myself. I am simply resigned to see myself always imperfect. And in this I find my joy. My own folly is this, to trust that your love will accept me. I am only a child, powerless and weak, and yet it is my weakness that gives me the boldness of offering myself as a victim of your love, O Jesus. Therese understood that love is nourished only by sacrifices. To love is to offer oneself to suffering, because love lives only on in sacrifice, so if one is completely dedicated to loving, one must, be, one must expect to be sacrificed unreservedly. This is truly the part of love that is most challenging for us. Love consists of sacrifice, beginning with Jesus' own sacrifice on the cross. Our willingness to undergo, to endure, and even offer up sacrifices truly proves our love. To love is to give oneself to another, to desire the good for another, to be willing to sacrifice for another. A married couple is called to this in sacrificing their individualism. That is, the focus on self, and, it's, and in, to instead focus on on the other and on family. A priest is called to do this in that he sacrifices his individualism in order to be present to his people who are his family, to give his time and his very presence to them. A bishop is asked to give up much to be present to a large number of people as a father and teacher of the faith in his diocese. This all involves sacrifice, and only if it is done with love, Can one truly embrace the role that one is called to live and live that with joy? Therese goes on to write, I have no other means of proving my love for you, O Lord, other than not allowing one little sacrifice to escape, not one look, not one word, profiting by all the smallest things and doing them through love. In suffering and combat, one can enjoy a moment of happiness that surpasses all the joys of this earth. So these little sacrifices, how much they are central to the little way. And Trez does not want us to miss one of them. Like her Carmelite sister, St. Teresa of Avila, Therese recognizes that there is no need for severe penances and mortifications. Therese recognizes that in loving others, especially those who are tiresome and tedious, that there is sufficient penance in this. You know, my definition of a saint, I shared this to my parishioners on All Saints Day a couple years ago, the definition of a saint Living with somebody who thinks they are one. (laughs) (laughs) So, Therese, she recognizes that in loving others, especially those who are tiresome and tedious, that there is sufficient present penance in this, and there's no need to seek out extra penances. Just try loving everyone your boss, your sibling your spouse, your neighbor, your co-worker. We will soon find that in truly loving them, we will need to make great sacrifices while remembering they may need to do the same for us. In living a little way, the sacrifices we make would resemble the list that Father Peter Cameron gives to us. We would be delighted To take the last place in line, we would recoil from flattery. We would rejoice in the success of our neighbors. We would make no excuses for our sins. We would be quick to admit our weaknesses. We would prefer hiddenness to acclaim. We would be grateful when others criticized us and pointed out our shortcomings. Yeah, that's a popular one. (laughs) We would not be undone by the injury and injustices we suffer. We would be unmoved by worldly status, fame, and prestige. We would experience peace in the midst of the world's conflict, turmoil, and strife. This is just a partial list. There are numerous sacrifices that we can make each day, even in the smallest things, think about going to the post office, which we're blessed in Auburn. You know, the most that you will have is maybe four people ahead of you. So I went to the Lincoln Post office one time near Christmas time, and I will never do that again. <laughs> so you're at the post office and, and you are we're, we're fourth in line. And the person being waited on is taking forever. How do we respond? With impatience and irritation? Or with patience, peace, and kindness? Or if someone cuts us off in traffic, though you and I know that we have never been guilty of this, (laughs) how do we respond Yelling, honking, and swearing at the person, whether or not they can hear us, or praying for the person that they will use prudence in driving, and thanking the Lord that an accident was avoided. Two very different approaches. Or someone takes the last of our favorite food at a potluck. That ever happened to you? <laughs> Didn't get there quick enough. (laughs) What is our response? That was mine. Go snatch it off their plate, you know. (laughs) Or, Lord, I didn't need that extra food. I'm glad someone else got to enjoy it. Lord, I'm thankful I live in a country where I have enough to eat. Keep me mindful of all those who don't have enough to eat this day. Wow, what a dramatically different approach, right? So these are just three simple examples of how every day the Lord provides us with innumerable opportunities in which to show his love and to be willing to make sacrifices. We now live in a culture of victims. Everyone is a victim of just about everything. Everyone is trying to outdo one another. and Who's being victimized more? And anyone who has anything good is considered to be privileged and is to be despised and hated. How different our world would be if we were instead victims of love, trying to outdo each other in showing love and willing to make sacrifices for the good of others. St. Therese speaks directly to this culture of love. I feel that my mission is about to begin, my mission of making God loved as I love him, of giving my little way to souls. If God answers my desires, my heaven will be spent on earth until the end of the world. Yes, I want to spend my heaven doing good on earth. It is no mistake that this obscure nun, tucked away in an out-of-the-way place in France, would become the patron saint of missionaries. Though Therese would never travel to exotic worlds to preach and to teach the gospel, yet she became for the church the patron of all of us. Missionaries at home and missionaries far away reminding us that our mission each and every day is one of love. Shortly before her death, she wrote to a missionary priest, When I shall have arrived at port, that is, heaven, I will teach you how to travel on the stormy sea of the world with the surrender and love of a child who knows God loves us and cannot leave us alone in the hour of danger. It is the way of simple love and confidence. That was her desire, to assist every missionary in both living and bringing to others that childlike love of God. Whether we travel to Africa or Asia or just across the street to our neighbor, we are all missionaries and all need the assistance of St. Therese to always have that childlike trust in God to guide us in our faith in all that we do. St. Therese saw as fundamental to the little way that absolute trust in God as a loving and caring father. And so that is where our third talk will pick up is looking and examining how we see and understand God as father and whether he is that true father to us or if we've allowed things to get in the way of that and we need to now repair that relationship with God the father to truly Love and embrace him in the way that we are called to as little children.